My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. My wife and I, Mary Beth, were blessed with uh, three amazing boys. Uh, they're uh, just, it's a blessing to us. We've been married 22 years now, and we've just been on that journey. Some of you know what that's like. You've got children, uh, maybe grandchildren, or maybe your aunt and uncle. Maybe you're not quite married yet, or you're in that stage. Don't really know, but I, I know this, that the journey of parenting is a great adventure. And it's got ups and downs, and it's got sideways and such, but uh, it's, it's a part of a really great experience. Experience that parallels so many things in our spiritual lives. I think about you know parenting from the perspective of when you know our kids came out, uh, they handed them to us and we left the hospital. We're like, now what do we do? You know what I mean? Where's the manual? You know, what do you? You know, it's like seriously, you trust us with this? We did a parenting class. We don't have a certificate or a license for this, but it's kind of this a journey. You you, you go through the stages of parenting, and so every stage is new to us, and it's a journey. And a little bit about you know you know this. This is like a parenting class, by the way. Uh, you know, they start as as babies, as infants, and and they, they're completely dependent upon you. They they need to be fed. They need to be cared for you know they they they're crying it's the only language they know and it's about them and it's this focus it's a wonderfully beautiful stage that first couple years when they're an infant they're a toddler and then then they start to talk and then it all goes downhill because uh, it's like why 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 and you're like i don't know why you ask so many questions you know but it's fun because they go into this stage of childhood and they start school and there's this grand adventure uh, we still have photos every year we get a photo of our kids in front of the school or the sign and it's just part of the journey and they go to class with students and their favorite part of school is recess you know and sports and then they learn the abcs and the one two threes and all that stuff and that's part of life and as they're growing they're discovering who they are they're figuring that out they're scraping their knee they're breaking bones they're doing all that and that's just the, the joyful part of raising kids and then they get to the adolescent stage and that's where our, our guys are right now and uh, i got my wife's permission on this one but Mary Beth's grieving uh, that transition because I don't know if it's this way, if it's male, female, I don't know, but I know it's how it's working in our household, that the infant stage and the childhood stage, you know, there's this mothering that comes along and this, you know, this, well, there was the great, no more diapers. That was a great transition, but um, there's this mothering nature that comes along in this. And, and then now that our boys are, you know, more dependent upon their friendships or they're reaching out that way, it, it's just a little bit of a transition, isn't it? I'm loving it personally because I'm an old youth pastor and now I'm excited because we get to read books and talk about things and there's, you know, just a different part of the journey. And with the goal then that they will, you know, leave, not 
right now, but I mean, you'll have your own grand adventure and you'll one day, you know, maybe get married. You'll have your own kids and that's kind of how it works and everything. So, um, but along with that, as mom and dad, we're the main disciple makers of our children. And we, we have to figure out ways at every stage and age to disciple them toward Jesus. Some of you, you've been along that journey. You know what that's like. And there are ups and there are downs and there are, there are challenges and there are joys. And, uh, you know, we're just figuring it out as we go along. There is no big book out there other than the Bible, which is not like a parenting book. You know, first parenting, second parenting. It's not like that. And so, you know, we try to figure out things. When they were little, you know, infants, we were on the joy of like, let's just read the Bible to them let's pray you know with them in the night and things like that they started school uh my guys still remember this you know we would go to starbucks once a week and we'd have a little bible study and it started with the simplest of books you know all the way up to more more complex ideas and now that stage is over and now it's different and we're trying to figure out as we drive along you know how do we figure that out as my son drives as i'm a passenger now you know uh, how do we figure this out this conversation with ultimately the goal then that they are fully formed as disciples of Christ and then they are on their own journey. Now, now I bring all this up because it's not a parenting sermon, but this is the same parallel that we experience in our spiritual lives. And we can see this and the difficulties of transitions and growing through the stages in the life of Jesus. In fact, if you have ever noticed this little snippet in the life of Jesus, he's 12 years old. Seth, you're 12. And uh, or you got six months and you're going to be a teenager. All right. You're about as tall as mom. Okay. Already. But, you know, this transition from being a child to becoming an adolescent. Jesus is 12. He's been at the temple. He's overstayed his welcome there. I love this picture. Mary and Joseph, who've been entrusted with Jesus, this God-man uh, from infancy, uh, the angel Gabriel, the Holy Spirit, the whole deal. And all of a sudden, they can't find him. It's like, can you imagine that? It's like, seriously, you lost God. Isn't that cool? It's like, I thought you had God. No, I thought you were in charge of God today. You know, it's like, wow. So then they go back to Jerusalem and they encounter them in the temple. Great scene. But this little almost passing throwaway verse is so powerful. It says in Luke two fifty two, and Jesus grew, Jesus grew. Uh, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people, meaning Jesus grew in certain ways. But the word grow is interesting because it, some translations say increased, but the word behind it, the Greek word means to cut your way forward. Now I like that to cut your way forward. It, it sounds like Lewis and Clark, right? Discovering the West Coast, you know, it, just, it sounds like people who are pioneers going out with a, a horse or a wagon and moving into an area and cutting down trees, building a home and establishing a settlement, right? To cut your way forward. Jesus did that. At 12 years old, he pushed through to the next stage. And it says he grew in wisdom, or that's with the intellect, and stature, that's the physical, in favor with God, that's spiritual, and with all the people, that's social. For 20 years, this was how I organized my annual goals. Every year, I had goals in the area of intellect and physical and spiritual and social, and I would set goals that way. And, and it was important for me as a youth pastor to think, how am I challenging the young people to grow in those ways? As a mom or dad, how are you challenging your children or grandchildren or, you know, nephews or nieces to grow in these areas to be well-rounded as a follower of Christ, as a disciple? But each stage, you have to cut your way forward to the next one. 
And I know this is really uh, pertinent to us because this is how we talk about it. At Sunrise, this is our discipleship pathway. That we start as a baby in Christ, an infant in Christ. And when you think about that, that's what Jesus said. Is that you have to be born again. John 3 is talking with this religious guy, Nicodemus. And... Nicodemus is an older guy and it's like, what do you mean? I got to be born again. Go back into my mother's womb. It's like, no, no, no. You have to have a rebirth. This is not a physical birth, a spiritual birth. And you're born again. And, and you think about that. Holding a spiritual baby just led someone to Christ. And you've just prayed with them. And now you're responsible, right? And they're going to cry and they're going to make messes. And you're going to have to help clean it up. And you're going to have to teach them. And you're going to have to feed them. And this is like nurturing the original Initial part of nurturing a brand new follower of Christ. Because we don't want to make decisions. We want to make disciples, right? And you work with them and you get them to that stage of infancy. And then you help them transition to childhood. When I lead people to Christ and I personally disciple them, I love this stage. Where we're discovering the Bible. We're discovering the Holy Spirit, God, the Father, the Son. And how to pray and how to witness and how to read the Bible. And how to kind of journey through life, right? I love this. And then you get to the adolescent stage of a spiritual faith. And you're wanting to serve. And, you know, you're much like teenagers. How one day you want to change the world, but you can't clean your room at the same time. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, but it's, it's kind of back and forth, but you really believe by faith, you can do something great. Can God can do great things through adolescence. And then you get to the point, which is the whole point where now you can give spiritual birth and you can then receive this brand new baby in Christ and you can disciple them along the journey. That is what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus gave this great commission, this is what he challenged us to do, to go and make disciples, not to go to church, not to just, you know, go and receive all the time, but you are a part of a journey from infancy and childhood as this new experience of Jesus to adolescence and parenting to where you are now leading others and you're responsible for the life for 2000 years. That's what the church has been doing. And that's what we want to do. It's, we're not about programs. We're about this pathway of discovering, making disciples and every one of us getting to the point. It is scary to lead someone to Christ. It is frightening to now be responsible for a brand new believer. But when you discover the joy of the journey, it is amazing what happens in your life. And you figure out why you're here. Again, not just to come to church, not just to give an offering or to go to a ministry or go to a retreat or go to a men's breakfast or whatever, but to actually disciple people. That's what Jesus has called us to do is to be a disciple that makes disciples who make disciples. But what happens if we get stuck? Because I know it happens. I'm not going to point fingers. Um, but I know it happens, right? Because I've gotten stuck before. We all get stuck in a stage. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to come to Christ as an infant, as a baby, or maybe just the first little bit of being a child and then just stop growing. And all we do is we come to church and all we do is we feed and we feed and we feed. We become this really fat baby that's, you know, crying and wah, wah, give me a bottle. And it's all about me, 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 right? And you go, but I've been saved 20 years. Yeah, but have you grown 20 years? Maybe you've grown one year 20 times, you know. We keep going back to the basics. What does it look like to be mature? What it looks like to be mature is that you're a spiritual parent leading other people. You're making disciples. That's maturity. Because maturity isn't about how much you know. It's not about all your beliefs as much as it's about your behavior and actually living it out and looking more like Christ along the journey. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we're in this series through the book of Galatians and the Galatian believers are stuck. 
They're stuck in infancy. They're stuck in their spiritual babies. They've come to faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul has gone around. He's planted the churches in this area called Galatia. He's taught them the elemental steps of what it means to be a follower. But Paul, he then establishes the church and he leaves to go plant new churches. That's his vision. That's his mission. I want to go where no one has talked about Christ, build a church, hand it over and go to the next place. Well, as he's left, other people have come in. People who are distorting the truth of the faith, that very elemental understanding of salvation in Christ, where Paul has come and said, there's this man named Jesus. He was God in the flesh and he came God's connection to us. So we could know this God, this creator, God, and he lived and he breathed lived the perfect life. He died on a cross for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And now he calls all of us to follow God through him, by belief in him, by faith in him alone. And they receive the message and he leaves and other people come in and say, yeah, but you forgot something. There's one else. There's one other thing you got to do. You got to obey all the rules. You got to be about the laws. You got to be about the check boxes because this is what it really means to follow God. It means, yeah, you can have faith, but you have to show all the obedience to the law. And they were, these were Jewish people who have come in, who've said, yes, you can come to Jesus, but you have to go through Moses first. And these are Gentiles, they're Galatians. They, they don't know anything about Judaism. And it's like, well, maybe through Moses and we're reading the Old Testament now, the Bible that they had, and maybe we have to follow all the rules. And so Paul's writing is going, no, nah, you, you're distorting the whole truth. You're going the wrong way. It's not, what it, it's not about rules. Rules never saved you. It's about faith. And so every week we're talking about this challenge. And although some of the particulars about Judaism and Jews and Greeks and all this stuff doesn't really relate to us. I think it does relate to us in a bigger picture because we all are religious and we all want to feel good in a religious sort of way. We all want to do religious things. You don't even have to be a Christian or be in a church to be religious. We're just by nature religious people because God made us to be in a relationship with him. And we know that. And so we try to figure it out. And whatever the religion we, you know, we pick, we pursue that and we do everything we can. But what we discover is religion actually kills because it will not get us to God. It'll create a system that makes us feel good or really nice. If you're good at it, it makes you feel smug and superior to everybody else. That's a fun thing to look down on people, right? Because you're better than they are. Paul says that kills and that is the law. And so we're digging into this. So if you have a Bible, Galatians 3, we're going to finish the chapter, verses 23 to 29. It's page 892 in your chair Bible, and we're going to walk through this. Now, uh, Paul is so good, he just tries different ways to illustrate the same point. And we're almost done with this, but it's really cool. I love this. So he's got a couple great illustrations for us to help us once again be remi- to be reminded of the simple truth. It's faith in Jesus alone that saves us, apart from any work any evidence of like religious duty that gets us there. This is what it means. It means to follow Jesus by faith and faith alone. So he jumps into this and he says, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us. In other words, in the old Testament, let's just say before Jesus came, before he came and lived and died and was resurrected. He says, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. So what Paul says is before Jesus showed up, we had the law. But as he said last week, we saw it was like a prison and we were kept as a prisoner in this. It guarded us. Okay, there was a purpose to the law. We'll see this in a little bit, but it wasn't the freedom. It wasn't to bring freedom. It was actually to bring condemnation. 
Now, you go, why would God do that? I, I was uh, reading Luther's commentary. Again, there's just very little I can pull out of this because it's, it's, really, it's really tough. But it's, it's great. And this is what Luther said about this. I love it. He says, even though the law kills, this is like the 613 commands and obeying and obedience and all the check boxes. Even though the law kills, God brings good out of evil. God uses the law to bring life. God saw that the universal illusion of self-righteousness could not be put down in any other way but by the law. In other words, God knows in our heart we want to feel good, so we have this false view of ourselves of how good we really are, right? And we go, hey, good people go to heaven. They don't. Forgiven people go to heaven, right? And so God uses the law to shatter this illusion. He says here, the law dispels all self-illusions. It puts the fear of God in the man. Without this fear, there can be no thirst for God's mercy. God accordingly uses the law for a hammer to break up the illusion of self-righteousness that we should despair of our own strength and efforts at self-justification. I love that. What basically he's saying is, is that, you know what God does? He loves us so much that he brings the law into our life to where we have to look in the mirror and realize we can't make it. We can't do it. And if we think we can do it, then we go to the law and realize we, f- we are total failures at the law. In other words, God uses the law like a two by four upside our head. To wake us up to the fact that we can't save ourselves, right? Or it's like a Louisville slugger up against the cranium, right? He cracks us going, did you really think you could do this on your own? Seriously, we don't obey the law. I mean, now, you know, we try, right? And we we have, you know, rules and we have, I mean, even in our laws, we do it out of fear though, right? Not, Not out of, wow, I just love all the rules. I can't wait to go follow all the rules. I mean, even you think about this with, with the rules that we have in our culture. We were talking to somebody at surf class. It was cute. She was saying, you know, she doesn't speed. I'm like, well, ever? Like, no. I'm like, excuse me. You drive a car and you've never sped. Well, maybe like five times. I like, you know, if you're here, it's like, yeah, five times. That's great. It's like, that's like me five times a day. Okay. I'm like driving along, happy music, listening along. Ah, we'll slow down, you know. God says... You really think you can obey all the laws 100%? Have you read 613 laws? I know some of them are easy because none of you, none of you cooked a goat in its mother's milk today. So you obeyed that law? Check that one. Man, I'm like 100% on that. I've never, never broken that rule, right? Okay, but things like lying or stealing or, you know, committing adultery or dishonoring our parents or the big one, having another God before the real God, an idol. We all have idols, right? Because our, our heart is an idol factory and we're, we're made to worship. And so we'll worship stuff and things and people and all dreams and whatever. We all have idols before God. So even the Ten Commandments, we can't obey every day, every week. <laughs> you don't even know the thing. I know, none of us, you know. It's like, let me see. God helps those who help themselves. That's one of them. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That's another. See, we don't even have the 10 memorized. We certainly can't obey all of them. God uses that as a reminder that obeying the law is not the way. It doesn't work. It never did. Well, what was the purpose of the law then? Well, that's what Paul starts to share with us again. The law had a specific purpose. And Luther says one one, one aspect of it was a two by four upside our head to remind us that we're just not that good. We're not as good as we think we are. In fact, we're pretty bad. We're pretty, pretty bad. Because we can't get 10 out of 10. And if you don't get 10 out of 10, you don't make it. Because the standard of righteousness for God is 100%. 
And we all fall short of that standard and that perfect standard. The law brought outward behavior, but it didn't bring inward change. You know, we obey the law sometimes out of fear. You've been driving along and you see the, the cop car and you're like, whoa, slow down, right? Put the brakes on. Because we have guilt, right? Did anybody live in guilt? I do. It's like even when I'm not speeding, I'm like, there's a cop. The lights were there for me. Did I do something? Was that five blocks ago? Did somebody, was there, was there a video recording? I don't know, you know? Because we're all guilty. We're all guilty. And the law, we obey out of fear and respect, but not out of love. But now all of a sudden we have something else out of love. And that's a relationship. So Paul says, let me put it another way. I like this. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God, be justified through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Uh, Now, Paul writes this in a culture that would immediately get the illustration because the word Paul uses for guardian, we might also call like a custodian, someone who's a a caretaker of a person. And uh, in that day and age, if you were wealthy as a Roman or in a Greek culture, you would have uh, many slaves. Uh, The the history tells us that maybe up to 40% historians say of the Roman empire was considered a slave, whether they had sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt or they were born in slavery, okay, varying levels of slavery. But it was very possible that if you, especially if you were a family of means, you had several slaves in the house and your most trusted, your oldest, the one that you could uh, really, really have faith in, you would put that slave, that male or female in charge of your children. So from the ages of six to 16, that slave, slave was the guardian or the custodian of the child and they were responsible for making sure the child received a good education and was safe so they would take the child to school they would sit with the child in school they kind of do some tutoring they were a district disciplinarian and then they would bring the child back and they were responsible for the child and the law was a guardian a custodian when we were children as it were When we needed that. But then once you turn of age, you no longer need the guardian because now you have this level of maturity. And Paul says before Christ came, the law was our guardian. The law was a strict disciplinarian. It cracked our knuckles, right? It slapped them on the, it was dis, it was just painful because it had one goal and that was to get us to conform. But that was only an outward conformity, not an inward change. And now that Christ has come, there's a different purpose here. You know, we don't, we don't obey the law in the sense of like, love it. And you, know, you take a look at a map and you're going to go from point A to B or, you know, you open your, your map app on your phone. It's like, I want to get from here to here. We don't love the map, right? <laughs> we love the fact that it gets us from here to there. And that's what the law did for us. And now Christ, even more so, ultimately, he gets us from here to there and we love Christ. Uh, the reality is this, is that the law did not lead people to Christ, but it was in place in the while in the disciplinarian stage until the law made us slaves. In fact, the law was a slave, but it made a horrible master. And if you submit yourself to the law, whatever that law may be, as far as rules and regulations, it will defeat you ultimately. Now, somebody asked me this week, a couple guys in a hallway conversation said, so, okay, so James, I got a question for you. How were people saved in the old Testament? If the law wasn't the way of salvation, it's a really good question. And, and actually Paul's already explained it. Um, he explains it in Romans as well. Uh, Hebrews explains it in chapter 11 
It's the same way we receive salvation, by faith. Hebrews says, uh, guys like Noah, uh, Abraham, Moses, all the guys and gals of the Old Testament, they lived by faith. Now, they were looking ahead to the promises, right? They were looking forward to something. And even they didn't receive it, Hebrews says. They didn't get it all yet. They were looking for something even beyond that. They were looking ahead to the promises, and it says they believed by faith, not by works. Didn't Paul just say this in in Galatians? He says it in Romans, that Abraham was saved by faith in the promises of God, even though he didn't receive them all in his lifetime. But he believed Now, you and I, we are saved the same way by faith and the promises of God. But the promise was Jesus already fulfilled for us. And so we, a simple way to think of it, we look back to the cross. We look back to this moment when Jesus came and he he lived, he died, he was buried and he rose again. And the Bible says when we put our faith in that and believe that we are saved. Well, they didn't understand the specifics of that, of course, but they looked ahead. And as they looked ahead, they looked ahead to the promises of God and they were saved in the same way you and I are by faith in God alone, not by works. Now, Paul wraps this up and he says this for you are all children of God through faith. Again, not works. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. A couple of the illustrations, the baptism he's talking about, it might be talking about the physical act, but he's really talking about the bigger spiritual act of baptism. The Bible says when you come to faith in God, Jesus Christ, what he's done for you, that you are immersed, you are brought into the family of God. And that's a baptism, that you are brought into this faith. You're baptized. And then the other picture he uses is that your old filthy garments, uh, the Old Testament calls them filthy rags, right? Even our goodness, even the things we try to do that's good, they're filthy, that he takes off those old filthy garments and puts on us the robes of righteousness, the robes of Christ. And... That, you know, why would you ever want to go back to filthy rags when you've got the robes of Christ, right? And when you come to faith in God, you're brought into the family of God. You're baptized. You're immersed in the family of God. People say there are a billion believers in Christ or more on the planet right now. That's a lot of brothers and sisters at the Christmas gift exchange to think about, right? But you are brought into a bigger family than just you. It's not about an individual. It's about this large family all around the world that believes in Jesus Christ. And then now God looks at you and sees you as holy and righteous as Jesus is because you have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the best kind of clothing possible. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that seems kind of odd to throw that in there, right? But those were the delineators. Those were the boxes that people put others in. They were the census checks, check boxes. Are you a Jew or Gentile? Are you a slave or free? Are you a male or female? And if you really wanted to be in the winning group, you were a Jewish free male. If you were a Gentile, if you were a slave, if you were a woman, you were of much lesser value in that culture. And and it's, it's horrible to think about, but this is how it was. 
Uh, you could see the Jew and Gentile reality because Jews would look down on Gentiles. Even though God had planned for the Jews to, to shine the light, you know, and it says this in the Old Testament prophets, they didn't. They held on to it. And so God wanted to use the Jews to bring salvation to the Gentiles. But the Jews would look down on the Gentiles and they would consider them dogs. They would consider them, you know, unworthy. There was this natural racist hatred toward anybody that's not of your race. You're the child, you're a child of Abraham and you cling to that. And therefore you're racially superior. You're, you're a supremacist, right? Because that's what it means to be of God. You're better than everybody else. And you would go to Jewish, uh, go out of Jewish land into Gentile territory and you'd walk back and you'd shake the filthy Gentile dust off your shoes and sandals and walk into your land and and you know you, you just wouldn't think of anybody else of having value in fact the, the jewish rabbis they would talk about the gentiles they do have a purpose that god made the gentiles to fuel the fires of hell i mean think about that that's a nice introduction hi i'm james uh, really nice to meet you you know why god made you so you could burn in hell forever it's like wow Talk about condescending. Talk about a hatred that comes up. Slave or free? Absolutely. I mean, slaves, they just look down upon because you're owned by someone else. Male, female? Oh my goodness, there's so much we could share there. How they looked down on women in their culture. In fact, the rabbi said it's better to educate a dog in the Torah than a woman. Ouch. Wow. You know, there's a prayer. It's in the Jewish prayer books even today. It dates probably around 200, 300 years uh, A.D., so just after Christ. And it says, I'm going to read it to you. Don't write this down, men. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, I find that, well, first of all, that's offensive. But I mean, I find that interesting when you consider that that was the cultural understanding. And Paul says this. There's no more Jew or Gentile. There's no more slave or free. There's no more male or female. So what you end up with is you end up with this reality that Paul says, you're praying that God wouldn't make you a Gentile slave or woman. And now there's the reality that we are all one in Christ. We have been united with God by Christ and there is no superior. We are all equal we have this reality of being loved. And Jesus, in such a beautiful way, he loved Gentiles. He served Roman centurions. He healed. He, he, he served. He was, a, he was a servant. He came as a slave, the Bible says. And he had women in his midst and taught women. And so there's this reality of, of people were looking down on. And Paul says this. No, it's not how it works. And then he wraps up with this. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Last illustration, Paul says, which again may not you know, move our hearts because we don't think about Abraham a lot. But the Bible says that we as Gentiles now, by faith in Christ, we have been brought into the family of God. And all the promises that belong to Abraham and his seed and his children belongs to us. And we now are in a relationship with God. And we now receive those blessings. Now, I love this picture because when you think about how Abraham came to faith in God, you have this beautiful story where it says he received the promises of God many times over, and yet he didn't get to see him in his lifetime. He got to see See the son born, but not all the blessings. And even before the son was conceived, the Bible says that God visited Abraham one night, pulled him outside, 
out of his tent to look up at the stars. And he said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you just the father of many. You're going to have many, so many descendants. You can't even count them. Look up at the stars. Can you count them? You're going to have more descendants than that. And in that moment, the Bible says, Abraham believed God and he was made right with God through faith. Long before Christ came, long before the law came, hundreds of years before the law came. And um, now I love that picture because now you and I are included in that. Uh, An old musician I I just loved uh, in my 20s, Rich Mullins, uh, he had a song. He said this, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. He was a stranger in this land, and I am that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb can be so steep. I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. That when Abraham looked up that night and he saw more stars than he could count, and each star represented followers, that's you and me. Even before we were included in the promise, but now in Christ, we are brought into the family of God. And we now receive all of the blessings that God has written throughout the whole of Scripture. And we receive it by faith in God alone. I hope you've done what Abraham did, which is to believe God by faith. Even if that faith is a stretch for you right now. Even if there's this leap that you need to make, not into the darkness, but into the light. To discover that there is a trustworthy God who loves you. I was reading in my Bible reading this week and I'm in the stories of David and, and Absalom. And it's, it's a fascinating, painful story. And there's this little, little, just this little, little verse that just has gripped me for years now. And we don't even know the name of the lady. She's a woman from Tekoa who comes and uh, has this wonderful conversation with David to, in a, in a soft way, rebuke him, but it's so good. And, uh, this is what she says. It's so good. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Now, now I, I was reading this, I read this on Thursday, and that's the day I found out about my friend, uh, a dear friend, a mentor of mine um, in Boise, and he's got stage four cancer. Got to pick up the phone and talk with him just, just a little bit. It's not good. It is not good. Then I thought about my friend from Boise, one of my best friends when I was living there, who... A year plus ago, shot himself in despair, killed himself, left a wife and two sons. I think about that this morning when I'm on the phone with one of my dear friends here, and she's a great faithful prayer warrior, and her 21-year-old son was shot and killed last night in her front yard. And I think about that in so many ways. I'm going to go visit a, a, a great lady in the hospital after this, a Tuality who's now on hospice because the cancer is overtaking her. And one day we will all go that way and our lives will be like water spilled on the ground. That's reality. But this lady says, and it's so good. God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. I love, I love the first part of the second part of this is so poetic that we're, we're all going to go that way. Every one of us are going to go that way ultimately, but God has a plan for you and he will devise a way to bring you, to draw him to yourself. I don't know why we would fight that. If, if the God of the universe, the God of all creation is searching for you and seeking you and devising a plan for you, 
Why would you want to ignore that? Why would you want to push back on that? Paul says in the book of Acts 17, he's talking to these very religious people. And he says, all that, all this, all these idols and all this religious life, it's our looking for God, but he's right there all the time. He has a plan that he's working out because it's trying to be pointed toward him. But in our, in our own sin, our own flesh, we end up with, what, what, is, what does Jesus say? We end up with death and destruction. The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. And we live in that. And yet God wants to bring life and he offers it to us and he's drawn us toward him. Why would we say no to that? Why would we push that away if the God of all creation is planning for us to see Jesus? Why would we say no? It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I get the fact that we're not in charge anymore, but that's kind of the point. We haven't done a very good job being in charge anyway, right? I get the fact that we can't save ourselves because we can't, you know, really do it. We've tried. We can't. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans. He says this in Romans 10. He says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, we saw this a couple weeks ago. I love it. If you openly declare, if you, with your own mouth, with your own words, if you say Jesus is Lord, meaning he's the boss, he's the one in charge. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, meaning if you put your trust in the fact that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. After that cross of paying for your sins, the Bible says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you go to church every Sunday and if you tithe every week and if you read your Bible and if you go door to door witnessing, if you do all these religious goods and if you're smug and superior and better than everybody else and feel good about it, then you'll be saved, right? No, it's by faith in Jesus alone. If you openly declare and you believe in your heart, you're saved, my friends. And I know we go, but that's just too easy. I don't get it. I want to work. I want to earn. You can't work or earn it. That's the point. It's a gift that we receive. And he says this, for it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This was written almost 2,000 years ago. And man... Everybody who calls in the name of it still works, my friends. Today, there's a God who's still searching and devising ways to draw you to himself because he loves you. And why would we want to push back on that or push away or walk away and go, it's okay, I can take it from here. Hasn't worked yet, right? I want to close the service in prayer and we're going to worship and, and be done and you can go enjoy the sun and all that. And that's great. We got fellowship time and got some food back there. It's, it's, but before we do all that to go to the next thing, I just want to ask you, are you like me, a believer a long time? Decades for me. Have you gone back to works? Have just like the Galatians, are you going back to infancy? Are you forgetting it's not your works? Are you trying to live it on your own power today? And preach the gospel to yourselves, my friend. Every day, get up and preach the gospel. It's by faith in Jesus alone. And then live that life of faith with the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you. Live up to that faith, right? But for some of us, and I I know in each of the services, somebody needs to say, for the first time, I receive it by faith. That I need to do this. I need to openly declare that Jesus is Lord. And I need to believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you'll be saved. Had a Hindu last night receive Christ? Scientologist, the first service received Christ? Man, I don't know. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're a Muslim. Maybe you're a Republican. God even saves Democrats. He does. 
He saves anybody. All right? He saves people who are ready to openly declare and believe in their heart. Would you close your eyes? Bow your head. And as we go to this time, I I do want to, first of all, to believers like myself, man, don't go back to works. Don't go back to law. Don't go back to your ability. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. It's by faith in Jesus alone that we're saved. You've been put in a relationship with God. You have the clothes, uh, the righteousness, the robes surrounding you. Don't take them off and try to put on filthy rags again. How foolish of us to do that. But for some of us here, I just want to ask you, if, do you, do you know it's time? Do you need, do, do you, have you come to the point of saying, yes, I need, I need to openly declare that Jesus is Lord. I need to believe in my heart that God raised from the dead. The Bible says you'll be saved. And, and I want to pray for you. And, and here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I'm the only one looking up right now. I'd like you just to raise your hand, just to raise your hand. If you're in that situation, does anybody want to do that today in this service? Does anybody want to say today is the day I want to openly declare that Jesus is Lord. And today is the day I want to believe in my heart. Thank you. Father God, I see one hand up. That's enough, God. For that one person, it is enough. Jesus has come to die for our sins, to be buried, to be resurrected, to new life, Lord, and to give us hope for that. God, today we openly declare with our own lips, Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our own hearts that you raised him from the grave. And when we confess and we believe, you say we are saved and we put all of our faith in your words and what Jesus has done for us. And we are now your son, we're your daughter. We are clothed in the robes of Christ, the righteous, pure robes of Christ. God, thank you for that. Father, we love you and we thank you for the ability to even share this publicly and talk about it. We count it a privilege to be able to gather together as family, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to worship in freedom here in this country that you've given us. May we not take it for granted, but may we in boldness cut through to the next stage of our faith, work our way forward to grow to the next level of maturity so more and more people can be made into the image of Christ, to be made into disciples. We pray in your name. Amen.